Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's been a busy uh, last couple of months for myself. Uh, last week, I just uh, finished uh, meeting with uh, Nathan and Beck in preparing for their their wedding, uh, the premarital counselling. So that was a, a real privilege and pleasure to be able to meet with them over a series of, of weeks over this last couple of months. And we look forward to uh, celebrating with them as, as their wedding uh, back down in Melbourne uh, at the end of next month. So they're busy in their preparations uh, for that. But uh, weddings are a time of great celebration, aren't they? We all want to get around people and, and enjoy uh, the moment. Uh, the joy of the moment is captured by the, the festive food and the, the fine clothes and the fancy drink. It is a great celebration. But just think, what would it be for someone to turn up to a wedding underdressed and refusing to partake of the sumptuous buffet that's been prepared and then expressing a depressed and, and sour demeanour. Everyone's around celebrating, but then you are, you are there in the corner sulking or sad. You would think that someone would tell them quickly to shape up or ship out. To act like that at a time of joy would be totally inappropriate. It would be acting as if uh, they did not think uh, the wedding should be proceeding. It would be acting as if the wedding uh, was not happening at all. Well, with that picture in mind, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 2. And we're going to read from verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Today's message is entitled Feasting with the Bridegroom. And as we'll see, the arrival of Christ Jesus is a time of great joy. For he is the bridegroom who has come to call his bride, the church, all who would repent of their sins and believe in him. There were those in his day who were upset with his followers for not properly fasting as an act of mourning before God. But to fast was to deny that the bridegroom had arrived. To hold on to the old ways of relating to God was to deny that the new and better and ultimate and exclusive way had come. person is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And this passage shows that you cannot rely on anything else. The question is, will you choose to feast with the bridegroom? There are three points that emphasise this truth. And the first is the great importance of acknowledging Christ. And so point one, celebrating the the bridegroom's presence. In Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, the incredible banquet put on by Levi to honour Christ and to invite his morally dubious friends to come and hear the gospel for themselves caused such an incredible stir. The scribes and the Pharisees looked upon Jesus' willing association with sinners as reprehensible. It was a, a clear repudiation of what they believed was righteous living and what God required. But Jesus eating with them was a picture of what reconciliation with God looked like. To the paralytic in Mark chapter 2 and verse 7, Jesus had declared his sins forgiven. And the meal at Levi's house was a demonstration of the forgiveness of sins. The Pharisees just could not believe that God's grace would extend that far. And so this event at Levi's place provided the impetus for the next challenge to Jesus. If they were unable to fault Jesus for eating with sinners, uh, then perhaps they could attack the actions of his disciples. Perhaps they could unhinge Jesus' ministry by showing that he failed to teach his disciples to adhere properly to the law and to the traditions that he did not teach them to fast accordingly and instead let them participate in undisciplined feasting. Well, before we look at the groups opposing Jesus here, let's just take a moment to understand uh, the nature of what fasting meant for the people of the day. And later in this morning's sermon, we'll have a brief look at what fasting means for us today. Uh, To fast means to abstain from food for a certain period of time for spiritual reasons. Uh, The connection of food and and spirituality is seen in the opening chapters of the Bible when Adam was told to abstain from eating a particular fruit. At the other end of the Bible, we see the great wedding banquet of the Lamb and his bride, the feast that all believers, pictured by the bride, uh, will get to participate in for eternity. And in between these two instances, there is a vast example of fasting. Now, the only prescribed fast in Israel was once a year at the Day of Atonement, which we read about in Leviticus chapter 16. Verse 29 of that chapter states this, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, the phrase afflict yourselves here is an attitude of denial and humility. And abstaining from food was then a particular way that this attitude of humility uh, before God uh, was expressed. 
But as well as this one prescribed day, there were many other descriptions of voluntary fasts that uh, individuals or the nation as a whole was involved in for a variety of reasons. Here's just a sample. Moses, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the Lord at Mount Sinai, which of course, uh, when Jesus fasted in the wilderness before his public ministry showed that he was the new Moses. He was about to bring in the new Exodus. What else? Well, King David, he fasted when the first child he had with Bathsheba was gravely ill in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Esther called the Jews to fast in preparation for her going to approach the king in chapter 4. Nehemiah uh, called the returned exiles to a corporate fast in repentance of their sins in Nehemiah chapter 9. And even the dietary requirements under the Mosaic covenant were a sort of fast, abstaining from certain foods as a dedication to God, showing they were separate from the pagan nations around them. Now there were uh, are many other examples of, of voluntary fasting, but it usually occurred in times of, of sorrow and repentance, uh, in times of extended prayer, or in preparation for ministry. So with that as a foundation, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so right here is a clear contrast. Some groups of disciples are fasting, while others are not. And clearly there's something wrong with that picture. And hence, clearly there is something wrong with the teacher who allows for such undisciplined behaviour in his followers. Now, Why were the disciples of John and the followers of the Pharisees connected together here? Well, certainly not because they agreed with each other. In fact, they stood diametrically opposed. Mark states in chapter 1 that John the Baptist called the people to a baptism of repentance that served as a physical demonstration of an inward attitude. But in Matthew's account, he explains that when the people went out to see Jesus, the Pharisees also went out to Jesus to see what was going on, uh, to John the Baptist to see what was going on. And when that happened, John did not hold back when he addressed them. Matthew 3, verses 7 to 8 states, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John knew that the Pharisees were focused on maintaining a good exterior, but on the inside, their hearts were not repentant. Their hearts were not humbled before God over the depth of their sin. So if John's disciples and the Pharisees were so fundamentally different, then why are they compared together here? Well, let's start with why the disciples of John would have been fasting regularly. Firstly, John himself 
was a living demonstration of fasting before God. Remember that he was known for only eating locusts and honey, uh, which was because he'd been divinely set apart before his birth uh, to live as a Nazarite. Uh, This harks back to Numbers chapter 6, which is another example of fasting, where certain people committed themselves to living a life of deep dedication to God. And God, before John's birth, said this is what is going to happen for John. And so it's not surprising that his followers would follow his example. But moreover, since John's message was focused on repentance over sins, then the practice of fasting in the sense of mourning over sin and longing for God's presence will be clearly understood. However, this mourning over sin was for the purpose of being ready for the one who would baptise with the Spirit. Uh, And then there would be a great time of joy. The problem was that not all of them knew that this one to come was Jesus. We must remember that just as Jesus' fame was enormous, John the Baptist drew some pretty big crowds as well. Thousands and thousands of people would have uh, heard his message of repentance and underwent baptism, but not every one of those people would have been there on the day that Jesus was baptised by him or in the times when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, him, right there, follow him. Well, here in Mark chapter 2, we recognise by this point, John was already in prison. He couldn't go and point people to Jesus. But when he was there, listen to his words in the Gospel of John. It's from the the Apostle John. Chapter 3, verses 28 to 29, John the Baptist declared, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John described himself as the friend of the bridegroom and happy to take a back seat of influence now that the bridegroom had arrived. Even in his attitude, he is filled with joy rather than mourning, The mourning that is typified in the action of fasting. And moreover, John also represented the finality of the old covenant. That's why in Mark's gospel account, Jesus' public ministry does not begin until we are told that John had been put in prison. The old had gone, the new has come. Let me ask. Have you understood the truth about who Jesus is? When you stand before the judgment seat of God, you can't claim ignorance as a defense. If you are here today and you have not committed yourself in faith to Christ, then let today be the day of your salvation. I implore you, in the hearing of God's word today to recognize that Christ is the savior of sinners and to recognize your need as a sinner. John's disciples needed to see that in Jesus. And may you see that 
too. So that's John's disciples. But what about the Pharisees and their disciples? Well, that's another story. As we've just seen, they did not share the same notion of repentance with John's disciples. Their religious actions were a means of works righteousness. Indeed, later in Jesus' ministry, he compares the Pharisees to a whitewashed tomb, beautiful on the outside, but rotting on the inside. Their actions did not flow out of repentance and out of an acknowledgement of their sinfulness and their deep longing for reconciliation with God. Prophet Isaiah offered a stunning critique upon religious fasting that did not flow out of a repentant heart and a desire for true godliness. In Isaiah 58 verse 3, the people asked God, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God's response, verse 4, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. And so when it came to the Pharisees, they fell into the same trap as their ancestors before them. The Pharisees, they were known for fasting twice a week, on Mondays and on Thursdays. This is acknowledged by history, but it's also seen in Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, where the Pharisee boasts proudly to God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. It's like saying, look God, I'm even more righteous than you require. But of course we know that it was the tax collector who went home justified that day because he relied not on his own works, but on the mercy of God alone for salvation. Let me ask, are you hanging on to anything you think is needed for your salvation other than Christ alone? I mean, you you might have been in church a very long time, but you still haven't relied fully on the grace of God, thinking that your own essential goodness or your own excellent deeds are what earn you a right standing before God. I was in an art gallery this week, uh, which had a photo of the sun piercing through the clouds. It was a beautiful photo, but its title uh, went something like this. I can't wait for heaven, so I'm breaking in now. Fallen humanity believes that this is possible, but this is decidedly impossible without the singular work of God's grace. So let go of your efforts for salvation and trust in Christ. Now, while the Pharisees were caught up in the traditions that they had added to God's law, we see that even the unhindered law itself was fulfilled in Christ and that fasting was completely inappropriate in the presence of Jesus. Because If we think about the purposes behind fasting, uh, sorrow for sin or a desire to be with God, then both the prescribed and the described fasts 
are inappropriate when God is present with them in Jesus Christ. It's not a time for mourning, but a time for joy. That they failed to celebrate was a clear indication that they had failed to recognise God had arrived. And this is, this is exactly what Jesus points out with his analogy of the bridegroom's presence. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And so Jesus sets up a distinct contrast between a time of mourning and a time of joy. Matthew makes this explicit when he recalls Jesus' extended words, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The practice of fasting carries with it a somber tone. Now that's appropriate at a funeral, but it's completely out of place at a wedding. A wedding in the days of Jesus was a week-long celebration. Imagine then one of the guests or attendants of the bridegroom suddenly deciding to stop eating and begin a fast. What message would that send? It would be considered rude to fast at a time of celebration and it would be a sign of disapproval of the wedding and of the bridegroom's presence. Jesus' response to those questioning why his disciples aren't fasting is that they are in the presence of the bridegroom. And as such, it is impossible for them to fast. It is impossible to act with mourning at a time of such joy. They did not fast because they had recognised the bridegroom's arrival and were filled with delight. It also serves as a rebuke for those who are fasting in Jesus' presence have not recognised who he is and are thus not filled with the joy that he brings. But Jesus doesn't merely use the analogy of the bridegroom because it it presents a good comparison between joy and sadness. No, it's tied intrinsically to the revelation of the scriptures. In the Old Testament, God is described many times as the faithful husband of Israel. Isaiah 54 verse 5 is just one example. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Well, that's in the Old Testament. The relationship between God and Israel in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ and the church in the New Testament. Think of the Apostle Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 where human marriage is understood truly as a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church, his bride. And of course, think of the visions of the Apostle John recorded through the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This connection is the reason why many of the parables that Jesus tells are set in the context of a wedding. He is the true bridegroom who will lead his bride into eternal salvation and 
joy. Now another important Old Testament passage that addresses fasting is found in the writings of the prophet Zechariah. He ministered in the time of the Israelites' return from exile during the rebuilding of the temple. And since the time that the Babylonians had destroyed the temple, the Israelites had instituted four other fasts throughout the year. And these were all representative of significant moments uh, in that tragic event. In chapters 7 to 8, Zechariah responds to the question of whether the Israelites should maintain these fasts now that they were prospering again. And in chapter 8, verse 19, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore love truth and peace. Zechariah's critique of the people's motivation for fasting throughout this section are summarised by his declaration to love truth and peace. Clearly then, the people of that day had not reached the point where the fasting would be turned to feasting. Only with the arrival of Jesus, the bridegroom, would mourning be turned to joy. And the ability to love truth and peace be enabled by the Holy Spirit with whom all Christ's people are baptised and indwelt. So why are Jesus' disciples not fasting? Because the bridegroom had arrived. He was present among them. And all who recognised him would join in the celebration. All who recognise him today will also join in the celebration. Is that you? Only when the bridegroom was no longer present would there be a call for such fasting. And that is what Jesus explains next. When the bridegroom is present, it is a time of celebration. But when the bridegroom is taken away, then there will be a time of sorrow. And so point two, commemorating the bridegroom's parting. Verse 20. Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Now right here is the first statement in Mark's gospel in which Jesus alludes to his death. Despite the claims of of scholars that Jesus had no conception of himself as the Messiah, Jesus knew full well what he had come to do. His future death would not be because of the inevitable clash of worldviews, but because of the decided and sovereign plan of God. Scripture knows nothing whatsoever of Jesus' death as an accident of history. Even the language Jesus uses here in Mark chapter 2, verse 20, reflects the great passage about the promised suffering servant in Isaiah 53, where verse 8 reads, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus' death would act as a substitute for his people, even though at the time they did not recognize it. The time of Jesus' death 
would cause sorrow for his disciples. And this mourning would be an appropriate reason for fasting. However, even this would not ultimately last. In John 16, Jesus made this clear to the apostles just before his arrest. Verse 20, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Christ would be taken from them, but on the third day he would be resurrected and joy would pour forth from their hearts. Anytime that a sinner repents of their sins and trusts in Christ for salvation, there is a pouring forth of joy in their hearts as well. But we also must recognize the fact that while there is joy now, that joy is not yet complete. The kingdom reign of God has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. It has been established, but not yet finished. This is made clear in the institution of the Lord's Supper. We are to eat and drink the elements in recognition of what Christ did for his people on the cross. However, this simply anticipates a greater time in the future. Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So as of this moment, believers recognize by faith that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But in the future, we will see God face to face. Faith will be replaced by sight. So even though God's reign has been established and there is great joy, we still await a time when the joy will be made complete. And this already but not yet aspect of the kingdom has a direct bearing on the nature of fasting for believers today. And although this is not especially the teaching purpose of this passage here in Mark 2, um, I thought it important to digress just for a moment because the concept of fasting is not readily understood in the church today. So God's kingdom has come, but it's not yet complete. What does that mean for fasting? Well, first... This means that we live under the new covenant which has fulfilled and superseded the old. We no longer fast or adhere to the Israelite day of atonement because atonement has been fully made in Christ. Our justification as believers is not because of any inherent righteousness in ourselves but solely by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. His righteousness credited to us. And as a result, fasting has no bearing at all upon our right standing before God. Nothing we do has a bearing on our right standing before God. Anyone who suggests otherwise is in contradiction to the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Timothy 4 verse 3 that it was the teaching of demons to require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. But secondly, however, though believers now stand justified before God through faith in Christ, 
Only in our resurrection bodies will we be totally glorified. But until then, we will still struggle with indwelling sin. And only at our resurrection will the rest of creation be resurrected as well. This means that the believer experiences the difficulties of sin from within themselves and also from without. This recognition should set up a deep longing for Christ's return. And it means at certain times, fasting may be an appropriate action. There are a couple of descriptions in the New Testament about fasting. Jesus fasted in the wilderness. Paul fasted after his conversion in Acts 9. The church leaders in Antioch fasted in the process of appointing other leaders in Acts 13 and chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus also points out that fasting must always stem from the right attitude as it should be done before God only and not to gain the glory and praise from those around us. So fasting was carried out in the New Testament but it was not very prominent. It would seem then that the physical act of fasting should simply be a natural expression to an inward condition. In times of distress or times of deep reflection, the act of abstaining from food may serve as a tangible, something that we can see and do, a tangible representation of your own inward spiritual state. Interestingly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5, Paul tells husbands and wives that the only time that they should deprive each other of intimacy is that they might devote themselves together to prayer. And this provides a helpful analogy. We may feel it appropriate to deprive ourselves of food, but for a certain time and for the purpose of prayer. So with that digression, let's now regress back into the focus of today's passage. The bridegroom was present, which meant it was a time for feasting and celebration, not fasting and mourning. There would come a time when the bridegroom would part, and only then would fasting be appropriate. The fact that John's disciples and those of the Pharisees did not recognize any of this meant that they did not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, the bridegroom who had come to bring celebration and joy through the sacrifice of his own life. As Jesus then seeks to drive this point home, it may seem that the two examples in verses 21 to 22 come out of nowhere. But while there's not an explicit connection, there is an implied one because when thinking about a wedding, what comes to mind? Fine clothes and fancy drinks. Jesus draws upon these aspects to show the incompatibility of the old with the new. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the way to the Father. The old ways of relating to God have come to an end in Christ And the people need to understand this if they are to experience salvation. So point three, comprehending the bridegroom's preeminence. 
Jesus' disciples were not fasting because they had comprehended the authority of Christ as the one the law pointed towards. They recognized the inappropriateness of conducting activities that highlighted God's felt distance when God's presence was right there before them. And so Jesus gives two illustrations that stem out of his wedding analogy to prove this point. Firstly, he says that his arrival is like a set of new vestments. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. When fabric is washed, there is a tendency for it to shrink. And so if you try to patch a hole in an old shirt by sewing on a a new piece of fabric, you will cause even greater damage. When the new fabric shrinks, it's going to tear away from the old and both of them are going to be destroyed. Jesus is saying that the old cannot connect to the new. While the old covenant points towards the new covenant, It is fulfilled by the new, and the practices under the old covenant can no longer be sustained under the new. He's saying to the people, you can't follow me and at the same time carry on doing things that point to my arrival. By doing the latter, the people were showing that they did not believe Christ was the true fulfillment. But he is indeed the preeminent one. And this point is emphasized further by the second illustration, where he says that his arrival is like a new vintage. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Where cloth tends to shrink, wineskins tended to expand. When wine was poured into wineskins, the fermentation process produced gases that would stretch the wineskin. And if you poured new wineskin into a previously used, sorry, if you pour new wine into a previously used wineskin, then when the wine began to ferment and produce gas, the wineskin could not expand any further and would burst. Jesus is saying that the old cannot contain the new. He's saying to the Jews that they had to decide whether they were going to continue living within the framework of the old covenant or let that go for the new. You could not have both. The scriptures themselves explain that the law was a guardian and that it was holy and righteous and good. But while it taught about the need for salvation, it could not bring this about in a person's heart. It pointed to something far greater, the new covenant, in which the law would be written on the hearts of all God's people. By continuing to fast in the presence of Jesus, the people were failing to grasp that Jesus was the preeminent one, that he was the one the old covenant pointed towards, the one who would bring true righteousness, true forgiveness, true justification. 
In failing to acknowledge Jesus, they were claiming a reliance upon their own ability to lead to salvation. For by seeking to sustain the requirements of the law, they were claiming that they could achieve righteousness by their own efforts, which is ridiculous considering the law makes it clear this could never happen. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. You may try and find another path to salvation, but it is a quest that is doomed to fail. The disciples of John and the Pharisees tried to do this by maintaining the requirements of the Old Covenant. But God's revealed law was never invested with the power to change a person's heart. It only pointed to the necessity of this and the necessity of a saviour. Only faith in Christ will lead to forgiveness of sins and a right standing before God. Only faith in Christ will lead to eternal life of joy where every sense of mourning will one day be gone for good. And so come, feast with the bridegroom and join in this celebration. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you again for your word that you have revealed it to us. In particular today, we thank you that you have revealed the preeminence of Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. We pray that you would be working by your spirit in each one of us to shed light on anything that we are hanging on to that we need to let go of. Anything that we are trusting in rather than Christ. He is the only way to life and salvation. So, Father, please help us uh, to have our eyes totally affixed on him. In his name we pray. Amen.